on episode 27 of Out of Play Area, the game developer's podcast, I sit down with a good buddy in arms from my days at WB Games Montreal, James Kane. He's a game designer and QA manager over at Raccoon Logic based out of Montreal. We talk about his journey into the industry where he worked up through QA, let alone even finding that that was even a valid career path. We talk about how he made the change and jumped into WB Games Montreal, where we got to work together. We talk about how he transitioned to Typhoon Studios, where he latched on to being part of a scrappy indie team of pros, where he got to wear multiple hats and he got to put his game design studies to use on Unreal, where he worked on Journey to the Savage Planet. We talk about what it was like getting acquired by Google Stadia and then reforming up as Raccoon Logic. Please welcome, all the way across the border from the Sub-Zero climate in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, James Kane. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. What are you drinking, friend? So I got myself some Four Roses Single Barrel Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. That seems like it's a special thing (laughs) to you. I was in Tennessee visiting my mom because she lives out there. And uh, her husband just likes himself some good whiskeys. Mm -hmm. And he was like, hey, have you ever had this? Because it's from Kentucky, like right next door. And I was like, no. And like every bottle is like signed for where it came from, everything. It feels a bit more personal. And man, it just goes down so smooth. It's no burn. It's just a really good whiskey. When I think Four Roses, I don't know why I I picture that building in Montreal on the canal. Yeah, I know. And weirdly, you can't get this alcohol in Montreal. If I ever want it again, I have to go to uh, Ottawa to get it. I think maybe it's because there's no French on the bottle. I have no idea. I'll do it. You got to localize. Otherwise, Quebec ain't having it. But it's, it's a really good whiskey. It's just super smooth. It's like a nice uh, chill night's whiskey. You take it with ice? Oh, yeah. Got uh, quite a bit of ice. Especially in the summer. Yeah, especially because we're in a heat wave right now. So, I mean, all the ice helps. Yeah, buddy. All right. Cheers. Santé. Mm-hmm. Feels oh, like so it has good. been forever since we had like a happy hour Fridays up in the Warner Brothers Tower over in... Uh, what's the name of that? Is it Barry Cam? Yeah, that's the name of the Metro stop. Yeah, Barry Cam. And then mm-hmm. up in the WB place, that was Central Perk. Central Named Bird. after the, uh, the Friends Cafe. Mm-hmm. That's special, man. I got a bunch of family that they love Friends. We're always having the discussion, like, is it Friends or is it How I Met Your Mother? And I'm definitely team How I Met Your Mother. Oh, man, that's a tough one for me, honestly. Like, they're both good in their own ways. Exactly. For me. And timing is a thing, right? Like, oh, of course. They came at a different generation. Like, I think there's more episodes I would go back and just, I, I just love watching from How I Met Your Mother. Because mm-hmm. like you can watch one-offs and they're just so well done. And I feel like Friends has a few of those, but Friends, most of them are more like build-up episodes, right? Like, oh, it takes like two or three episodes for the big impactful thing to happen. So it's harder yeah. to just drop someone into a random Friends episode when they don't know context. Whereas How I Met Your Mother, it seems pretty simple. Each episode can stand alone as long as you know the characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I get you. It's been too long, but at the same time, it feels like no time has passed. Yeah, it's been a hot minute. So much has changed. Where are you at today? Oh, today. Well, recently announced, I'm at a new studio in Montreal called Raccoon Logic. It's a lot of like ex-Typhoon guys who started up the studio again after our fun round at Google. But yeah, so I'm going to be a junior designer and the head of QA. 
Okay, so a hybrid role, but it makes sense if it's a small team, you wear multiple hats. Yeah, Typhoon was the same thing, but it was the opposite. It was, I was head of QA and a junior designer. So I did like a little bit of design work and my main focus was to lead their QA because they were so tiny. They just needed someone who had pretty good knowledge. And now it's like the role reverse. It's like, hey, they need someone to help a bit with QA to get it started, but I can finally do the design I wanted to start doing. Okay, so more design than QA, whereas on Typhoon, it was more QA than design. Yeah, I think at Typhoon, it was probably like maybe 75% QA. And now it's going to be more 75% design. But it really depends, right? Like if they get to a point where it's a huge crunch and they need a lot of help QA style, I will put the design on the hold because it's more, I'm just there to help at the beginning, right? So I'm, I'm there, whatever capacity they need me. And they got some pretty good rock stars on that team. So, I'm, you know, my design skills are a little low, but my QA skills are pretty damn high. I love how you always approach it. You're always willing to learn. And to be fair, designers, once the game is already set, we turn into QA, right? So yep. at the point in the project where I imagine, right, a company hasn't even opened yet, you're going to need design. There's not going to be much to QA. And then as the life grows. QA is interesting at the beginning of a project, though, because you just want to make sure that you can showcase your build to the team without it breaking, right? Mm. And that's all it's going to be. I feel like early, a lot of people silo their work and then just like throw it in the build, like on like a Thursday afternoon because they want to show it in like, you know, the Friday show and tell or whatever, right? Yeah. And I find like, yeah, when you're farther in production, you don't do as big silos. And like now it's going to be like all the designers can be working on their own maps, doing their own thing. They might not be submitting to the branch. So I got to, you know, make sure that it doesn't break. Stand up those processes and like checkpoints, right? Yeah, it's more, I just make sure they're submitting more frequent than they normally would just so I can make sure the health stays good. So that's going to be my my role as QA there. Just make sure the build's not busted and make sure it's, you know, working so everyone could assess what's going on and, you know, get the ball rolling as fast as possible. I want to ask you what it feels like now that you're building content. How would you empathize with people that are like holding on, not wanting to show anything, don't want to check anything in until it's perfect, you know what I'm saying? But then also fighting your alter ego of like, check it in, rapid iteration, you know, don't hoard anything. The sooner it's in, the sooner we can identify any conflicts. I don't hoard anything. In my design, again, maybe it's a junior thing, but I'm fast. Hell yeah. I prefer to get it in quick and then get people's feedback as fast as possible. Then take like a week to think I did it great and it not be as good as I thought it was and then have to redo it anyways, right? But it's interesting because I have that QA background, I'm really trying to check my stuff as much as I can. So like say I build a quest, a simple quest, I put it in the level. I got to make sure the rest of the level still flows properly. I got to make sure my quest didn't break anything. And then once I finish triggering, I can keep triggering other quests, Yeah, right? And like not everyone's going to do that because mostly you make sure your thing works. And then if it works, you're good, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But that's been the difference with like me becoming a designer from QA is I feel like I QA my work a lot. And it's not like I'm even thinking about it. I'm just doing it without thinking. It's second nature to you. Yeah. And it hasn't slowed me down at all. If anything, like I'd love pushing my work out as fast as I can. I'm still giving it the best quality I can, right? Totally. But I try putting it out fast because I really want to get people's eyes on it. Because I've seen too many times where someone takes two weeks and I'm like, hey, man, that just doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. So much can change over that time. By the time you submit, there's merge conflicts. I love it, bro. That takes veterans years to learn, right? So the fact that you already put it into practice, but you're a veteran yourself. You've been in the game for a while. Yeah, just a different field, right? Hell yeah. You've seen enough wrong to know how to do it right. Yeah, you just see the things you're like, hey, man, this is just going to cause some weird stuff down the line. Let's just fix this now. Or it's also what I found really interesting coming from the QA side. So at Typhoon, for a good example, because I did design there, I QA'd their game for like a year. 
And, you know, you know the game inside and out and I can speed run that game pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So then it's like, if you're making something, I know if it's going to fit the level at all. Like you'd be like, oh, it's a new mechanic. Like, yeah, but it doesn't feel good. Right. Or it's like, ooh, that feels really good because it flows with this and that. And like, it doesn't hinder my playing. Yeah. Right. Which is, which is interesting because it's like, you know, most people just either design something on their own and like, hey, it's cool because it's, you know, a fun thing, but they don't have the whole scope of the game that they're yep. thinking about. Right. Remind me the name of the game. Oh, uh, at Typhoon, it was Journey to the Savage Planet. That's right. How fast could you get through that guy? I'm no speedrunner, but I think I, I get it in like under an hour. Damn. Okay, so there's two ways to beat that game. I know it's on Game Pass right now. I've been meaning to get into it. You can either blast off the planet or beat the boss. So there's two win conditions. One takes a little longer than the other. So I think the fastest one I can do just to get the credit screen and, you know, I win, I think is under an hour. And then the full game, I think it takes about... If we do multiplayer, because it's co-op, we can do it in about like an hour and 20, an hour and 30. But like, that's just, you have to know where every single thing is, divvy up the work and just blitz. For what you do for someone on the outside being like, hey, what does a QA director handle? What does a junior designer handle? How would you break that down? I'll start with the junior designer because I've been doing it so short. But that side was doing small things. So it was like implementing small quests into the game, placing collectibles, resources, and a lot of tuning. I think for Typhoon, I did like all of the creature health tuning, player tuning for damage and health, you know, things that are pretty simple and don't require me to break the game. And then I left the heavy lifting of like building all the systems and everything to the other designers. And on the QA side, that was managing a team of, we were only two people internally, but then externally we had at most, I think 15 and at least maybe six. So it was making sure internally we were, you know, smoking the builds, making sure that if uh, a programmer had something big, they were going to be checking in. We had to create a, you know, make our own build with that specific change, make sure everything worked perfectly, you know, working with the devs just to make sure that, yeah, all their features worked internally before we sent it out to the QA teams to then them do their huge test passes that we'd be monitoring and we'd make for them. So we would give them, you know, just can you collect all the things in the game? Our game had scanning. So is everything scannable? Does it work? Is it beatable? Can you get all the upgrades? You know, we'd give them their their big test plan to do, and then they just churn through that test plan as fast as possible, give us our results, and then we'd see what happens. So it was just managing them and then managing my one tester internally. How do you go about laying out a test plan out of curiosity? I mean, you could do it a thousand different ways. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. So an example on a Batman game, right? You can make a combat test plan, which is huge because it's basically every single thing that Batman can do, be it every punch, ability, combo against every single enemy in the game right so that just looks like a giant matrix of just fun yeah like a spreadsheet yeah across that it's every upgrade and then can everything be canceled if you get hit so if you have a five chain combo what happens if four three two get hit right so those are like your combat test plans then you have like ai test plans where you can make sure the ai don't break i've done that working with you yeah buddy they're fun so you give us the tools that we need to monitor them and we You know, there seems to be like a lot of soak tests involved where we'll leave the game overnight perched up like Batman's a great example because you can like perch above the the enemies and then we just watch them and make sure they don't break. And then Mm -hmm. if we come back in the morning, they're still functional. And if you try to engage with them, they work fine. Right. That's a good one. Then there's destructive test plans where we'll just say break everything in a zone, hit every wall. You're checking for, you know, collision issues. Test plan could be anything you can think of. You can turn into a test plan. My test plan for Typhoon was really what was my smoke test? And it was just every ability in the game, scan and kill every creature and then do every quest. And then I just kind of took that, gave it to them and said, hey, this is the base version of it. You know, do all that and kind of just do a bit of halo testing around everything just to make sure that we didn't miss anything. I don't think I've ever heard the term halo testing. It's you got ad hoc testing Mm -hmm. and halo testing. It's just go do stuff. It's off the book. So basically 
let's say I give you a combat test plan. Mm-hmm. There might be stuff I didn't think about, or there could be stuff that is super situational that may never happen. Like in Batman, you can use a gadget off of a car to kill an enemy and like that stuff because it's procedural, have some of the, the world loads. So maybe that stuff would never happen. So I'm like, hey, you're the combat expert testers, go nuts and break combat. You know, your test plan is your your guideline, but some people don't like doing a checklist. Some people are way better if I just say, hey, you do combat, go break it. Yeah. Totally. So we give them like the ad hoc or the, the halo testing that they do for the day. Some people really don't like checklists. I personally love them, mm-hmm, but for sure. some, people, some people thrive without it so much better because they get super creative. Yeah. Yeah. It allows them to be creative in a job where you wouldn't normally think that's a thing you get to unleash. Oh, hundred percent. How do you empower that? Or how do you spot it? You know, to be like, oh, okay, he, she, or they are on my team. And okay, they're a list person versus, okay, they're more of like a free reign person. So at WB, I was only a senior there, but I had some control over some people. And we did a lot of test plans on Batman. You would see how people would act throughout the day. Is it someone who is going through their checklist in like two hours or a day, right? Is, is it someone who likes it? Because some people will love it and they'll they'll say it like, like, hey, I just finished. Can I have more? Like, I'm, I'm enjoying this. Some people are like, hey, yeah, it's done. And like that person doesn't want to be doing that. <laughs> Dead in the face. Yeah. But then you have to see like, because there's a lot of, you know, the publisher wants bugs, right? And the whole point of these checklists is to find the bugs. If I give you the ability to go do your ad hoc, are you bugging? Are you finding useful things? Or are you finding more useful things when you're on the checklist? Right. Because art's a big one. Art will have like, hey, bug everything in like zone A, right? And then you go there and it will be whatever severity we say, okay. And it could be as low as grass clipping into a wall to, oh, we only want big objects that are higher than your knee. Right. And, you know, some people thrive with that, but other people just want to run around and not be stuck in a zone and feel like they're not really moving. Okay. Interesting. interesting. That makes total sense. If you're a good QA lead, just talk to your testers and make sure they, they want to be open with you too, because you don't want it to be a, a crappy job that, you know, you don't like doing because mm-hmm. there's, there's always going to be a part of it that will be fun for someone. Yeah. It's always slotting in your people in the right spot. Yeah, because some people love looking for those weird art bugs. And and they have an eye for it, too, because they know art. Mm. Right. And that helps, too. And some people don't. And then you put it on it and you see the huge difference in what they find and, and how their, their week goes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've always felt that you were a very approachable person, very open to communicate, give feedback, take feedback, always wanted to learn. And so I find if you were a lead or director or my boss, it's kind of an open door, right? Like I should feel no hesitation to come over and talk to you about like, oh, I want to do something else or I want more of this. I'm curious, how have you felt with your team and having that culture? Oh, I, I love it. Yeah, I love it. Like I've had bad leads and I, I only say they're bad leads because they, they don't want criticism on what you give them. They don't want you to come talk to them. They, they just want you to do your job. And like, I get it. You want the job done. But me, tell me everything, man. If you don't like what I gave you, just tell me you don't like it and we'll figure it out. You know, it has to get done some way, shape or form. But if we can find a better way to get it done that makes you enjoy your job, I'm all ears. Yeah, man. And there's this weird thing where outsource QA, they feel like they don't have a voice a lot of the time because they're just in this giant machine of you give them a build from a random company and they write bugs, right? And when we were on Journey, no one was talking to us, really, because I feel like they had this, they, they thought that everything they said had to go through their lead and their lead would have to be very specific on how they would word things to me because for some reason they think I'd be insulted. I guess they might have worked with people in the past. And we saw that like they just weren't talking much and we were like, 
hey, please tell us everything. I don't need it to come from your boss. I know if, if that's weird for you guys, just talk amongst yourselves. But like anyone could say anything. You guys can DM me specifically. You don't even need to talk in the chat if you feel like your question's stupid for some reason. Like there's no dumb questions. But if you feel like it is, poke me directly. Everything matters. And that team became so talkative and their bugs started changing dramatically because we started saying like, hey, if you think our systems are bad, bug them. But don't just say it's bad. Give me your reason and think as a designer on how you would make the system better. And we may not fix it, but we might. And some of their suggestions came through and we fixed like certain quests that felt weird for them. And But normally you can't do that as an outsourcer. No one lets you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen those dynamics. I've been in those dynamics, right? Even when you are a support studio to a primary studio, right? Like an example is a Rocksteady to a WB working on Arkham Knight, Rockstar San Diego supporting Rockstar North as they're working on a GTA, right? Like it's funny initially up front, even though we're all kind of the same team, the fact that we're separated by a physical building creates these invisible little barriers and we all operate like super like, okay, I'm going to talk to you through my manager and my manager is going to relay the thing. I got worse for you though. Okay. When we were at WB, we were a floor apart and we had those problems. Yes. I saw yeah. that. And it was, it was amazing to me because that would journey between the floors, right? Be it for snacks, for meetings. I'm coming back from basketball and, and checking up on some of the people and you could totally feel it. It was like a force field. It was like, hey, yeah. does your badge not open the same doors that my badge does? Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, us, we were not allowed to go on your floors. And it, I think if I'm correct, there was this thing where we were technically two different companies. Oh. Technically, you guys were WB Games Montreal mm-hmm. and we were like Wibby. It was like WB Interactive Entertainment or something. Yeah. And it was weird enough that that's what it was. So like they separated us in that way, but it was so annoying because we were testing your game. You guys were downstairs and I couldn't talk to you. And we weren't even allowed to like message you on the internal messaging systems or anything. Which is crazy to me because I come from the same mentality that you have. I'm like, yo, you're playing my content. Tell me what you feel, bro. And it's up to me as a designer to interpret it and work back and forth with you to see like, okay, what do you really mean? What do you feel? Where are you seeing it? How does it work? Right? Like any feedback is good feedback. Oh, of course. And it's up to me as the the creator to give you the vocabulary to let me know exactly what I need to know kind of thing. You know, typically dev QA comes in in these situations where you guys will be, you know, super close to the dev QA because they're on the floor with you. They could be embedded on your design team. And then it's their job to then relay all that info to the outsourcers or the publishers QA, be it in the same building or another building. But it's just, it's awkward because that like sometimes singular dev QA has a job to do, but they also have to manage a bunch of information, take requests. Like it's just, you get bogged down. It's, it's a weird system. So you mentioned dev QA. And again, this was this was a whole different world for me, right? Like I just thought QA was QA, but there's apparently a single tree with many different branches on that sucker. You want a few little breakdowns? Yeah, please. I don't know everything. I'll tell you what I know. So you got your outsourcers. They're your big, your big powerhouses of QA. They can take huge contracts and lots of contracts. Okay. They're usually juggling a bunch of different projects. Yeah. And it's usually where you start as QA. Okay. I started that like 13 years ago at a place that doesn't exist anymore in Montreal. What was the name? It was a VMC, but they got eaten up by the big keywords and they're like keywords is like a powerhouse of QA right now. Okay. Not saying this is a bad thing, just that's what they are. So keywords is a huge outsourcer. Outsourcers can also have sub departments of localization. 
So you have your Loke QA. Sometimes those are in-house as well. Like they Loke can really be anywhere. Does your studio want to have a full-time Loke? Probably not. Um, does your publisher sometimes because they have the money for it and maybe they're, they're doing a lot of games so it makes sense, but usually they're your outsourcers. Then you get your compatibility testers, which are just for PC usually. And I've done that too. It's basically you're building computers all day and you're testing hardware. You'd usually do a really big pass and you're, you're trying to find the min specs. Yeah. So you're trying to find out what this game can run on, what the lowest settings could possibly be. But it's so hard because it's testing different amounts of RAM, different motherboards, different processors, all the graphics cards, uh, internal graphics cards. It's a lot. So compatibility is... If your game works on PC, be happy those people exist because it's a lot of testing. As you're talking about this, it makes me think of this amazing platform that is Stadia and all the cloud gaming platforms, right? Where like that X factor is now kind of completely taken out, right? Like, yeah, there was no compatibility testing on there at all. It, it turns into being more like a Microsoft or a Sony or a Nintendo at that point, right? There's one skew. Yeah. It's, it's the one build and that's all you need because you're streaming it. Whereas, I mean, Sony and Microsoft are a little bit different now because they have, you know, now it's like, hey, does it work on PS4 and 5 mm-hmm. and the pros? Like there's a little bit of testing, but it's normally not that bad because all they're really doing is giving you more RAM usually. usually. So it's just, if it works on the base spec, it work on the best, on the, the high end spec. But PC is just a whole beast. So yeah, I, I actually, I liked that about Stadia. It was interesting because I really love the idea of as a dev making something on PC, you don't have to worry about it not working on someone's computer. Mm-hmm. Right, that was cool. Even in this work from home remote setup, man. Like, yeah. I talked to a bunch of dev friends and they all test off of Stadia. Like, all the reviews are done on Stadia. Yeah, I mean, you just know you're going to get the same performance as the other person, right? So it's it's interesting. It's not the best. It's got its hiccups. But I like that for, like, a testing standpoint. It was really cool. Plus, I don't need any special hardware. I can test it on my cell phone like it just worked so easily for testing it was very fun to test on that for a year wait you were testing on your cell phone yeah man what do you do you do like a xbox controller bluetooth to your cell phone you could but it has touch controls they're not great for every game and they were janky at best for ours but it worked that's crazy yeah. bro <laughs> i thought it was so cool that i'd be like because it was like, hey, can you make sure this build boots? I'm like, yeah, it's Saturday. Like, I'm eating dinner. Sure, I'll just quickly press the button on my phone. It takes a second. Like, it's no big deal. Hey, look, it worked. Here you go. Thumbs up. Yo, can you imagine where we are today? Like, I never thought we would ever get in this position of, like, developing from home, developing at our leisure, super flexible hours, right? Like, being able to do our job yeah. around the clock, you know, as needed, you know, being able to kind of fit life in. I remember early days of QA. I think it was like when... The PS2 was still pretty big and it was almost PS3 time. What's this? This is like early 2000s? Yeah. And it was more waiting for discs to show up. So it's like... Oh, for people to burn them and bring them to you. Sometimes. Because if it was a normal build, sure, the build master would get a disc and they would burn a disc and give it to us. But if it was like a gold master candidate, we would have to wait for the studio to FedEx them to our building because we couldn't burn those in-house. They had to come from a special whatever. And I was like, man, that was crazy. What's the difference between the gold master and the, the ones you burn in house? Man, I don't know. Some weird Sony on that disc. Okay. They're burned by console heads. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's more like it's a legit copy of the game. Just not, you know, fully real. Bet it's like the certified Sony or certified Xbox with the little seal of approval. Yeah. And like Gosh. that went away pretty fast. Cause even PS3, we had some downloads too, that we were able to do like, yeah. cause we can download builds, but 
that was crazy because I remember sitting in the office like 10 a.m. and the guy's like, build should be here. And I'm like, come on, be here for four hours. And then it hits noon and they're like, okay, we have to let you go because there's no work. I'm like, all right, man. Damn. So that's just burning money, right? Like the hours are ticking away, waiting. Yeah. And all that's gone. So like that was horrible. It's so much nicer now. And then the stadia just, my mind exploded thinking back about how ridiculous that was. And now it's like, hey, just go to the website and press play. It's like, <laughs> Okay. I love that. That That's the thing that got me. I was at Amazon testing out Luna and that was the main thing that kind of hit me in the face was like, I pressed the game and I'm loaded in. I was like, yes, I'm in. That's what sold me. It was nuts. I know. And the resume. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, like a cell state, phone. The you state know? save thing where you could just go back and press play and you're back to where you were. Yeah, See, dude. And Stadia was cool with that because I would start on my cell phone, make sure it worked, and then I could just go on the PC, click, and I'm back in game. That's the best shit ever. That was nuts. Going back to the branches of the QA tree. Yeah. So we got your publisher QAs. Oh, so these are these are like first party Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo. Yes and no, because it's also like WB, uh, Rockstar will have their own. It's yeah. more your in-house QA, but not dev QA. So it's more that weird structure we had at WB where they own the QA themselves. So it's a little bit nicer of a job because it feels more permanent because that's also the fear of outsourcing is uh, lack of jobs and uh, non-permanency. It's a, it's a big one. Whereas publisher is more of like, you know, you feel a bit more secure in your job, but it's still, you're not dev QA yet, right? And then the sub part of that is the certification QA. So that's your, your Microsoft, your Sony, and your Nintendos will be where you send your builds and you have specific QA who test them to give you your, your certification results mm-hmm. to see if your game passes and is able to go live. Right. Gotcha. So you have a specific team for that. Then you have your dev QA. So your dev QA are your embedded team QA. Mm-hmm. So usually there'll be, you know, a dev QA for the audio team and for the programmers. If it depends on how big your team is, right? Yeah. Per usually discipline can, or per yeah. feature. Yeah. Bigger your team, the more dev QA you want because you really want them to be testing everything you do and make sure that it's it's as clean as possible because you have so many hands in that pie. You got to make sure it doesn't break. And that's my favorite part is the dev QA, but it's also one of the harder ones to get into because there's not as many jobs. Yeah, it's my favorite, man. I mean, it's it's the oh, one, know. it's the homies, right? Like you guys are in the trenches right there alongside us, hearing the pain, helping us conquer through that, right? And, and troubleshoot. And yeah. usually a big proponent in our reviews and all of our meetings, right? Like we kind of look to you to make sure that the build is loaded. It's, it is where it needs to be and be able to call out whenever we see something, right? Like you guys kind of save our asses a lot of times, but like, oh yeah, we've seen this. This is known, blah, 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 right? Yeah. I'll give you a little, little story for DevQA. Cause like I haven't been DevQA for that long. I think my first time was at WB on a game that doesn't exist, Metallica. Oh my God, my heart, my heartstrings. That was my, that was my first dev QA job. I did like an internal one where I was at a studio and I helped them out, but they didn't treat us like dev QA. They treated us like QA who were literally sitting next to them. It was very bizarre, but this was my first time really doing dev QA work. And I remember chatting to uh, someone on the team who I won't say names. I don't want to call anybody out, but they don't like QA and they had a bad taste for QA. And we were chatting because there was only two of us on dev QA up there. I'm like, we were like, Hey, we don't want to be hated. So like, what's up? Was it you and Christian? Yeah, it was me and Christian. Oh, there. shout out. Shout out to that man. The first two dev QA up there. Ooh. And yeah, they were like, QA, you guys just write all those stupid bugs about like grass clipping and walls and stuff. Like, you know, you flutter databases and give us these dumb bugs we don't want when all we want is the big issues. And then I was like, yeah, man, we don't want to write those either. Yeah. Like the only reason, the only reason those bugs exist is because your producer, your manager told my boss that you want like 30 bugs a day per QA. 
there's a quota. Yeah, man, it's hard to find 30 crashes per tester a day. And like, for example, when we were on Batman, there was like over a hundred of us in-house. And then there was another team of over a hundred, right? So let's say, let's say 200 testers a day. They want like 20, 30 bugs each. Even with a game as big as Arkham was, depending on the stage of production, right? Yeah, that is challenging. It was buggy, sure. But like, it's hard. Especially that PC one. The PC, to be fair, wasn't that bad. That came down to compatibility. Yeah, it was like the NVIDIA cards or whatnot. Well, we looked at a lot of those crashes and they were like, there was no graphics card in that system. We're like, oh, that's probably why you crashed. I could see that. I could see yeah. that game, the, the hype the hype level of that game and people kind of downloading it however they can get their hands on it. Oh, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, whatever, my, my, my system can run it. I got two gigs of RAM. But yeah, so we were basically like, look, you tell these giant groups of testers they need these bugs and the threat is, hey, if you don't, you're fired. That's really all there is to it. We'll find someone that will get us 20 bugs a day. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to find my 20, 30 bugs and it's going to be some crappy art. Right. Like I, d I don't have time to spend three hours looking into a crash, which I'd love to. But if I do, I potentially lose my job. Like that's a terrifying thought. Absolutely. Like quotas are horrible. So when we explain that and we explain like, hey, like we're we're here to help you guys, whoever you guys want. And if what you want is for us to do an arc pass for you, tell us the parameters of what you want and we'll bug it. If you want an audio pass or an AI pass, we'll do it. Just tell us what's the minimum bug you want. Because if you don't say anything, we're just going to treat it like you want everything and we'll bug everything. We'll get the big ones out of the way, but then we're going to go granular and go small. But if you tell us, like in Batman, it was don't bug anything below the knee. Anything clips below the knee, we don't care because it's too small. Yeah. And it's like, cool, tell us that. Like, if you don't tell us that, we're just going to start. And like, we don't want to get like 4,000 invalid bugs in a day. It looks really bad, right? And I feel like a lot of devs don't know this. Their producers and their managers know this stuff, but the devs don't. So the devs are the ones that get swarmed with all these bugs and they just get this weird perception of QA and they just like writing, writing crappy bugs all day. That's why I bring you on to the show. Hey, well, hey, I bring on to the show to drink with you. But the yeah. second thing is I bring you on to the show to set the record straight, man, and let people know who may not know that these are your marching orders as they come down, right? And very often they are this made up figure that seems to make sense on some spreadsheet of like, hey, I have these many bodies. And if I ask them for this many bugs, odds are 10% of those are going to be super important. And, you know, we're fixing kind of thing. Yeah. Or it comes from a, another weird point where it's a dev plays a game one day and is like, hey, this area is real buggy. Why aren't QA doing their job? That happens. And then they're like, hey, the producer found nine bugs. Everyone who plays should be able to find nine bugs. And that's how a weird quota gets imposed. Yeah, that makes sense. Producers are often kind of like in there trying to earn their paycheck. Yeah, but then what the producers don't get is like that build will never see dev QA because the dev QA are going to bug it first. And like, it's just this, it sucks, man. How would you fix this dilemma that plagues QA, which in the form of quotas or the miscommunications that developers feel, right? Like I've always appreciated you guys. I appreciate QA, everything you do. And I love when you guys come over in your inquisitive nature to learn, right? Like, so what I see in front of me today, it's turned you into this super powered designer, right? That checks his work before it goes in. And I just see an awesome evolution in front of me. So I think it's a hard one to fix because there's a lot of like problems. You need some good leads in the, the QA side, right? You don't need people who just want numbers because there's a lot of those because there's a lot of people who got hired as a lead who have never done QA. Maybe they got some sort of degree for something that whatever management degree they took somewhere. 
What's a management degree? Yeah, man. You, well, you can do like a management course these days. It's like okay. a weekend course and you get a, like a little degree of you are a manager. I know at WB, you need to do that if you want to be a manager. Oh, shit. Yeah. Crazy world. But I mean, I just feel like, or some people get promoted really fast for reasons. Yeah. But you just don't want people who only want numbers. That's tough. For sure. And then those people just have to have real talks with the devs. And the devs have to be open with it too, right? Because then then you're talking to the producer on the dev side, right? And that person has to be not, again, just about the numbers. And, and that's the big problem. Don't just be about the numbers. Be about the quality. Yeah. But I get it. Like, if, if you see that it's been a week and there are zero bugs coming from your QA team, there's probably a problem, right? And that's another thing. Like, bad thing, as I told you, outsource QA, it's like people are worried about losing their job. It's also pretty low paying. Oh, shit. Yeah, so super volatile, high turnover. Yeah, but people also just want to get out of it. No one wants to stay QA because the pay's bad. And that's a big problem because if you're like, hey, I'm going to be QA so I can be a designer because there's a path there. And a lot of people do that path. But that shouldn't be your reason for doing it. Mm-hmm. Like, it shouldn't be like, hey, I want to be a designer so I can live and make money. It's like, no, man, QA should be good enough to be able to pay you to do your job. For sure. You want good QA because if you don't, what's going to happen is the people who become good QA leave. I definitely agree with that, man. Like, I wish it was a a path that was nurtured and fostered and had a a long road to growth, right? To go through the whole ladder of like senior, principal, director, ways to be better at the craft, right? Because an experienced QA person is worth five juniors, if not more. You know what I'm saying? Oh, of course. But they don't see it that way usually, right? They're like, well, we'll just get five juniors. Yeah, exactly. Why pay this person this much money when we can get five people, five bodies with a pulse? Like, I love QA. It's great. And I feel like when I got hired at Raccoon Logic, they were like, hey, yes, you're a designer, but also could you do some QA? I'm like, yeah, man, it's fine. Like, I like it. Like, it's not a bad job. Well, it's funny. I feel like at a small team, at a small shop, everybody does a little QA. Yeah, everyone does a little. But there's things like running daily smokes just to give the health of the build that people can then have like a backlog of. And they'd be like, hey, well, the build was great two weeks ago. Why did it start being crappy? And then I can be like, well, that exact build number that we tested on had this change so we can look quickly and start seeing what what broke right super valuable whereas yeah everyone on the team could check their stuff but you want someone on the team to be giving you guys and gals and people the info right yep so yeah i just i feel like it sucks that we don't get enough respect because man we're just doing our best hell yeah man we're all doing our best and that discipline is as essential as any other discipline in making the games that we get out we cannot be done without that discipline and I love it. Honestly, it's really fun, too. If you get a good team, it's, yeah. it's just a blast. Like that Metallica team, bro. Metallica team is fire. <laughs> the whole team, the whole time I was at Typhoon, I never thought like, oh, man, I'm only a, a QA. I want to get out. But I was also in school to be a designer. Mm. And they saw me going to school every day. And my lead came up to me. He's like, hey, man, do you want to do some design? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know, man. You guys are, there's like only four of you and you're really good. Like, I'm just in school. They're like, okay, well, how about we give you something small? Like, okay. And at that point, I was already fixing bugs myself. Like, that was a very strange QA who would just, I had access to the editor. So if I saw an art bug, I would just fix it and then submit it. Was it unreal? Yeah, it was unreal. Yeah, which makes it super accessible to jump into. Oh, yeah. So they were like, well, you're already in the engine fixing little bugs here and there. How about we just give you something small to work on? And they're like, nothing crazy. Just like we're adding these collectibles that we don't really have many around in the level. Just start placing them and like, you know, submit it. Have fun. That's yours. I was like, okay. (laughs) How big was Typhoon? I were like 24. Man, you see, there's something to be said for small teams, right? Anything under 40. 
because yeah. these opportunities for growth, exploration, learning, right, are just like so plentiful that you get these opportunities that you very likely would not get at a huge AAA hundred oh, plus person team. Two thousand percent, man. I remember just I showed interest in like what was it? I, I was like, hey, this enemy is kind of cool. How does it work? Mm -hmm. And the guy who made the creature was like, oh, you want to know how, how this works? I'll show you the behavior trees. You want to mess with it? I'm like, what? And he's like, here, yeah. like this one's not done. Have fun with it. Like you can submit whatever. It's not going to be more broken than it is. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then that got me into playing with AI Boom. slightly. I'm no AI designer, but I got to tweak a lot of them and it was fun. And it was just little things. And every time I would show interest to someone, they were super ecstatic to tell me about it. Cause again, we're small and they have time. Yeah somewhat and they're like hey do you want to know how to do it because i can use a bit of help but if i teach you how to do it you can give me a little bit of help I'm like hell yeah, yeah strategic bro how do you feel about authoring behavior trees talk to me about your exposure to them how intuitive are they what you like what you hated what didn't make sense just because i have to talk to people about these from time to time and i always want to understand how i can break them down better i mean they scared me looking at it at first because some <laughs> of our creatures were a little all over the place in what, that like tree. 50 leaf nodes yeah and i was like man i don't want to touch that but some of our very simple ones where it was very straightforward was easy to just drag and drop behaviors that they made connect things up testing it was super easy i wouldn't want to mess with bigger things <laughs> sure it just looks intimidating right i feel like if i did it maybe it wouldn't be so bad because i i do it but i found the behavior tree fun and pretty simple at a base level fair so start people off small oh yeah and then kind of stair step them through it right like okay here's the next guy here's like the elite 100 percent, right because right? if you throw someone in with anything bigger than that and they've never seen it before it's just yeah. gonna look intimidating now again some people love that but for me that was like i don't know about that <laughs> so they're like okay here's the simplest enemy i'm like oh i understand that yeah 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 fair because then, right? like, then i can understand it and how it works really easy i'm like oh, okay this node does that and if i tweak these parameters in this node I exactly see the outcome very simply mm -hmm. because this enemy only does one thing. Yeah, bro. Can you believe that behavior trees have been around since what, like mid 2000s? I think they came out on the scene since like Halo 2 or something. And they're used everywhere to this day, bro. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. All right, James, I need to know about your origin story, man. Like, how did you come into the game industry? It's not that exciting, but I think when I was like 18, I had a friend who was working in QA and uh, I messaged him one day because I was playing Boulder's Gate Dark Alliance 2. Okay. And I just kept, I kept breaking, that game was pretty buggy. On the <laughs> and I broke it a bunch and I was just chatting to him about it one day because he was like a, a friend we were playing, like, I think we were playing WoW together. Yeah. And he was like, hey, I just got a job at this company called VMC. Do you want in their hiring right now? I'm like, I don't know, man. He's like, well, that's cool. Like you're breaking a game already. Come get paid to break a game. I'm like, all right, that sounds cool. And they sent me like this really weird test where it was like, hey, we're going to show you this 30 second video and tell us all the bugs. And I was like, yeah, all right, man. Just off a of video. Yeah. Wow. I watched this. I don't know what game it was, but it was super weird and buggy. And it, it was basically like a QA's bug they found. And then they were like, hey, just tell us what bugs are in this video. And uh, yeah, you had to get X amount correct and you got the job. And I guess I did. So I started working there. Did that for a lot. I think I was there for like I don't know, five, six years. Damn, that's a good run. Yeah. Then I was like, I'm going to get out of QA because we don't get paid money. And my, my work is scary because I'm constantly like on call and fearing for my job. 
How common is that to be at that place at that time for that long? Seems like you're like, you have to be top 20% to stick around that long. Yeah. I mean, back then there wasn't like as many people as there are now. And I was giving it my all, man. I was just wanting to be, I wanted to be like a senior or a lead there. But there was just never positions open because there were so few of those. So eventually I left that studio and then I, there was another studio in Montreal called Enzyme. And they were like, hey, we don't have like an office that we're going to put you at, but we're going to put you in a studio. And I was like, all right. So they embedded me at WB. Yo, that's right. I felt like Enzyme sounded familiar. Now I know why. That that was like the big uh, QA house that was helping WB for a long time. And I think now that they're keywords, there's that now. But, But yeah, so I was there and... It was great. And then getting to actually see devs around and, you know, chatting with you guys during lunch and stuff. It was pretty cool. Was there anything that surprised you once you were in-house, like compared to what you (laughs) imagined games were like when they were in development? I mean, I didn't get to see them much. We would get to see like teaser trailers of what you guys were working on downstairs and stuff. But I I just wanted to see more. But because I was like an outsourcer, we just weren't allowed because of how our NDAs worked. So they eventually worked my way up to just working at WB which then gave me access to come down to your floors and see your stuff. Yeah. Uh, which was cool. And then I was like, oh, I want that. And then I met a great person named John Diaz. Oh, shit, that's me. Yeah, and he inspired me to become a designer. Legit, true fact. Get the fuck out of here, bro. Yeah, no, like- we're working with you, you were like one of the first people who really made me want to go into design. There was another person. There was, uh, it was you and JF Champagne. Shout out to JF Champagne. I think that fool was like creative director on that, like, uh, the Dungeons new, and Dragons the new, game. The new Boulder's Gate Dark Alliance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, it all comes full circle, bro. Yeah. No, but like it, it was, it was you too. Cause you didn't, I don't know. You were just so different with how you interacted with us. You guys were both super just friendly and it really made me love the design side. Cause like, man, I get to sit down with either of you and check out your work and stuff. Or JF would make me play Texas levels and, and it was just super fun. I loved it. Remind me where that was, man. So that was already, I think we were like post Metallica. It was like Sabbath or Gotham Knights now. Yeah, it would be it would be like the the early 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 days of Gotham Knight, like in its prototypey phase. Okay, and if I remember correctly, we were all in the same pod or strike team, and we would be in stand-ups together. Yep, I think I forgot how it was, man. I don't know if we had like a morning one and then an evening one. I think we just had a morning one, and then like, well, there was a morning design one, and then there was maybe the sub teams. You had an AI one specifically. That's right. Um, that's right. We would do that, that would break that off. Evening. Yeah. And then JF, I think, had like a missions one because he was on the missions design team. Yeah, the crime team, I think. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just super cool because I'd get to be in all those meetings with all you guys. And I was like, man, this is just super fun. I need to ask you because I want to make sure that I keep that essence and that I keep that energy up. What did I do so that I can keep doing it? So I was like, man, you in there kicking ass as a designer now. So I want to know what I did so I can keep doing that thing. I think you were just being you, man. It was, it wasn't no corporate Diaz. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yo, you ever watch wrestling? Yeah. This makes me think of what are they called, man? The, the heels, the Alliance. Oh yeah. Yeah. Whatever the fuck it is. Right. You know, they wear a suit. They bring the briefcase out. Or yeah. The, the, cor- the corporation they used to work with McMahon. Like, yeah. Like you didn't feel like that. Okay. Right. And some people, some people were like super siloed and they didn't really want to talk about their stuff. And if I would ever come up to them with like an issue, they would kind of take it as like an insult almost Jeez. like, how dare I criticize your design? Right. But, but some people aren't good with that. Yeah. To be fair, to be fair, it took me a, a bit to learn, right. This goes back to kind of the, 
the, oh, I don't want to check something in. I haven't like dotted all the I's and slashed all the T's and haven't checked all the possibilities. I'm unsure. I'm insecure. I'm not ready to be criticized. But, you know, what we learn is fuck all that. We're all trying to make a good game. The sooner you yep. get it in, the faster we can iterate, right? Like everybody knows it's going to not be perfect. It's going to be broke as hell. Right. Yeah. And I think you and Jeff were just the most real people on that team. And I, I felt like anything I would come to either of you with, you, you actually actioned on or would take me seriously. Right. I mean, you know, you're a veteran, bro. You got you got great eyes. You have a great yeah. sense for how games should work. Right. Or when things are off. Right. So it would yeah. be stupid of us not to have listened to you for sure. Yeah. But it's a lot of people don't. <laughs> a lot Crazy. of people don't. Crazy. I, man. I find I find more designers do. Okay. It's harder to to get through to a lot of the the programmers. Interesting. Because at that point, I literally don't know the programming. True. I just see there's a bug, and then they're always like, "Well, it's not my bug, man. Go away." You bring up a good point. To be fair, I think there's times where I don't get through to programmers as well, man. So you yeah. and I are in the same boat. I get it. Most likely, it's not that person's fault, but somehow their system is interacting with something that's causing a bug, right? So I, I just found that you and JF were just super down to earth and made me feel like part of the team a lot more and didn't make me feel like I was QA in the team. Okay. Right. You guys made me feel like the team. All right. So the moral of the story there is make people feel like they're part of a team. Yeah. Yeah. Just try not to just make them feel like they're not like, especially with QA, like, just don't be like, Hey, QA person. <laughs> I've had people, I've had people say that on the teams like, Hey, QA, come check this out. I'm like, man, I have a name. Yeah. <laughs> like that's rude. Oh, crazy but yeah just, just just be nice to people hell yeah it's, i like that as crazy as that sentence has to be be nice don't be a dick there yeah. you go what were you studying in college like for the design side i'm curious what they were teaching you what you were learning on so my course was independent game design so we learned a lot of stuff we learned in unity and we had animation classes or art slash animation but it tended to be more animation then we did design Started at paper, we all had to build board games all the way up to, you know, make your own little Sage game. So we made like a VR game. Then we had programming. And like the last class was like a history of the industry and then how to self-publish yourself if you wanted to go indie. Well, like on Steam or something? Well, but more just how to like, if you want to, how to kickstart, how to get a publisher, oh. how to promote yourself properly. More that. So it, that's pretty sweet, man. I didn't get that when I went to my curriculum shit. Yeah, well, this was supposed to be a, a class to, if you want to be an indie dev, you have mm -hmm. every tool, if you finish this course, to publish a game. Smart. Was Osama your teacher? No, but he he like was the coordinator for the, the, the class. Okay. Meaning what? He like built the curriculum? Yeah. And like you think, I think he was in charge of the teachers and stuff. Yeah, I think. But that was cool because I was also working with him at the time. <laughs> so I was like, hey, man. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Uh, I'm in this now, but he, he was great. You got, you got like free office hours while you're at work. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I get to use, I get to as much as time as I wanted. Yeah. But yeah, so it was basically, you know, how to be a pure indie team and how to self-publish. And some people from class are doing that. They're 100% making their own titles and they're, they've been working on it for like a few years and they're doing great. Whereas some of us, because of our teachers, our teachers were all like in the industry, they were from like Ubisoft or something. So it's, Hey, if you did good in that class, you know, your teacher will just try to, you know, help you get somewhere. Or yeah. we had a really good way to get mentors because, you know, your teachers knew people in the industry, which was super great. What was the name of the school? Uh, this was at Dawson. 
Gotcha. It was a short two year. It was great. It wasn't anything crazy. I would have preferred Unreal over Unity, but Unity was cool because at least it forced us to learn programming. The C sharp. Yeah, because you have to. Mm-hmm. Can't do anything without it, really. I like that. I would have preferred Blueprint because it would have been faster. Mm-hmm. And I was just more comfortable with it. But I mean, Unity was good to learn. Do you think that learning C sharp has made you a better visual scripter? AKA Unreal Blueprint. I still suck at Blueprint, but yeah, <laughs> it, it, it did help a lot because at least I understand what's happening. Yeah. A lot more than if I didn't. Like, because I think before I went to school, I was like, man, Blueprint looks confusing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand anything. Spaghetti. Then you get there, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I wrote that. And I understand. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I always have a sense that people jump into Blueprint prematurely. And if they were to kind of pseudo code what they're trying to build, you know, like, okay, I need the animation so that I can play it and then I want to stop it at this point, you know, on paper or as if they were writing C sharp and then take that into blueprint. I think they would have a much better time, but yeah, teach their own. The only thing I really loved about Unreal is that if I wanted to get something done really fast to show someone an intention, I could just build it in the sequencer so fast. Is that their like little matinee cinematics tool? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so good because if I just want to show you my intentions really quick, I can build something in the sequencer and have it all play out where when I'm running into things and doing stuff, things happen. And I did no coding at all. I didn't touch the blueprint at all. I can do it in like minutes and I can show you what I want. If you think that looks cool, then I can worry about actually making it so it works properly. That's powerful, man. I mean, for people out there not understanding, right, I would give them the visual of, hey, put me in a mocap suit with cameras where I can act out exactly what I want you to see. And it just loads up like instantly, right? Like, yeah. But on top of that, the sequencer is also like, hey, when I run into this trigger, which you just make a tiny little trigger that has like when you enter in, which is the easiest thing you can do in Blueprint, right? You'd be like, hey, when I do that, I want this wall to just vanish to give the intention that like, hey, I finally did the thing I, or I killed the enemy. When I walk into this zone, the enemies die, which is mm-hmm. me killing them. When I walk into this next zone, I progress the wall crumbles yeah it's like it's gonna look it's gonna look rough but like i can show you what i want really fast and visually it looks nice versus Mm -hmm. like saying it to you right and i didn't realize how much i loved that till when we were doing some prototypey stuff at stadia and that was just so fun because i didn't realize how quick i can get my design across without having to jump into the blueprint walk me through getting the offer at typhoon what was the interview process like and how did the opportunity feel i think i applied to typhoon when they went live so mm-hmm. like when we were at wb i yeah. i applied for them when i i saw their studio come online then i heard nothing and it was like two years later and uh, then randomly i got an email from from reed the he was the ceo i think or just yeah he's like our founders. old vp yeah. or president of warner yeah then he he basically ran typhoon and he was like hey I saw you replying to be the the lead, come in for an interview. And I'm like, yeah, all right. Sure. Two man. years later. Yeah, it was out of the blue. And I, cause I think at that point I forgot I even applied. Sure. After that much time. Right. And then I went in and it was really just, they knew who I was already because worked at WB and Reed remembered me somehow, yep. which surprised me. You're a memorable guy, man. Yeah. And then it was some other people who were there. Most of the, like a lot of the team I had worked with as well. They were either artists or programmers or just, you know, people who I've worked with in the past. And they were like, hey, yeah, so have you worked in Unreal? I'm like, yeah, I did it at uh, WB. I've done it uh, a bit at this other studio. I'm like, yeah, I've been working with that. They're like, all right, cool. I'm like, I'm going to school. They're like, that's totally fine. I'm like, going to be a designer. Like, great. You want to fix bugs? I'm like, yeah, sounds great. 
they said that as a joke and I did it, but that was pretty much it. And then they, they gave me an offer. They're like, how does that sound? I'm like, sounds great. <laughs> it's like, I'll take it. And they're like, all right, well, we'll get back to you if uh, you got it. And I think they, they messaged me back like two hours later that I got the job. And I was like, that's crazy. That's what's up, man. Like same day, boom, you got the job. Yeah. Yeah. It was nuts. I think it really helped that everyone there knew at least who I was. Um, well, you know, that's something worth talking about, right? To people listening in is the importance of your rapport, your relationships. Oh yeah. Never burn, never burn bridges. Don't, don't ever, doesn't matter what anyone says to you. Don't, don't ever stoop to that level. Just always be nice. Uh, just because people are going to remember you. You know, by the nature of what we do, right, is creative. You open yourself up to criticism. You got to be mm -hmm. vulnerable. People are not always going to like what you do. And tempers are going to rise, right, when things are breaking oh, left and right. We're going to get into arguments. My buddies call it creative discussions. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being a human, being able to get your emotions out and apologize or... Yep meet up and however you unpack that, right? Like, hey, let's have a tea, let's have a coffee, let's have a drink, whatever. Yep. So yeah, that really helped. And yeah, that was, it was crazy. Starting there was, was crazy because I don't want, I'm not saying this to, to throw shade at nobody. All right. But the other, the, the old lead there just was very different from what I would have done. So when I came in, I think it was like, they're like, hey, yeah, so here's what the lead did for a smoke test. I'm like, awesome. I'm like, how often do you guys want it? They're like, well, I mean, like once a day. I'm like, okay. And I looked at it. I'm like, it's pretty short. The game's not that big. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, cool. So I burnt it up in an hour. And they're like, you're done? I'm like, yeah. They're like, oh, okay. And they were confused. And I did like four in the day. And they're like, wow, how, how are you doing so many? I'm like, man, your game is small. You don't have many features yet. Like it shouldn't be hard. <laughs> yeah. But I, I also think it's just, I know how to do that well, because I've done it so many times and I guess I don't, I don't realize that when I'm doing it. Experience. And I, yeah. And I was able to blitz through their stuff and then I made a way bigger, robust smoke for them with so many more things, which they didn't think they'd be able to have tested in a day. And I was like, I'll do it three times in a day. And I'm like, get you one early morning by like 9am. It'll be done. I'll get you one for noon. I'll get you one right before the end of the day. So you can have a history of how your check-ins are going. Yeah. Cause I imagine the more smokes you have is a better indicator or a better way to catch what has broken, right? If you do yep. one a day, then you have 24 hours of check-ins to kind of sort through oh, of versus course. if you do three, the window is much smaller. Yeah, I can tell you, hey, the game was super stable at noon and then it stopped being stable at five. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that happened early this morning. It's something that happened between noon and five. And that's great to know. And that's why I was like, it blew their mind that I was able to do it. And I was like, well, I mean, I built it myself. So I know how to do my runs perfectly. I know how to manage what I do in a smoke. I can get the best out of my time. So if it's like, hey, I got to make sure I test all the abilities against every creature. I'm also going to test, you know, the metrics at the same time. I'm going to make sure I'm running and jumping as I'm burning through your level because I also got to make sure all the levels work fine. I'm like, I'm just going to build myself this crazy course that I can run through to make sure I check everything in one shot. So I'm not running through the level. Okay, the level works. Okay, now I'll go check the creatures. Okay, the creatures work. Okay, now I'm going to check the, the three Cs. Okay, those work. Like, make sure I do it all in one shot so I don't have to go back on myself. Yeah. How was it when Google came into the picture and says, hey, you want to be a Googler? Here you are. You're a Googler now. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. I mean, it was cool going away from building three, you know, well, more than three SKUs of things to just having the idea of having one sounded super appealing. Oh, because you guys became first party. Yeah. Yeah. We were the, we were the first party studio, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. I think there was another one, but, but yeah, we were pretty much like a big first party and it was my first time working as a first party dev. Sure. Which was super cool. So it was, yeah, our game was going to be Stadia only. So it's one thing to worry about, which really takes 
headaches off of so many things. You know, I don't have to worry about testing the PlayStation, the the Xbox and PC and the Switch, right? It's just Stadia. Yeah, it was cool. I liked it. It wasn't, it was a lot of meetings and- uh, I hear know. this. I hear this. Once Google comes, it, it becomes a lot more processes and meetings yeah. and data and reports. I, mean, I feel like, I don't know how it was for you at Amazon, but I feel like that's just how big companies are. Amazon was similar. I found myself yeah. in a lot of writing, a lot of reporting, a lot of data, mm-hmm. and and a lot of check-ins, man. Like validating any crazy decision or assumption. Right in games, there's a lot of gut in yep. games. <laughs> Amazon and Google don't operate off the gut, man. No, I mean I didn't see it that bad from my side because again I was just the designer, so I don't know what my bosses saw. But for me, it was more just Google specific meetings or Google specific talks we had to go to because it's just. Google wide things. Oh, okay. And there was just so many of them. <laughs> but I think it was also because it was COVID. There was this bonus layer of just weird at the studio. There's a lot of learning, right? Like just information sharing, knowledge gathering, knowledge yeah. collection. Yeah, because like, you know, we're small, we're a small little game studio. We know how to make games. It's fine. But I feel like these meetings weren't for us. They were for the people who have never thought of working from home because they need to be in the office with other people. But That's we just right. got caught up with it because we were part of Google. So it was it was a roller coaster, but I liked it, honestly. You liked it? You go back? I don't know. <laughs> because the thing is, like, what what would I go back to? Is there is there games to go back to? If it's, hey, it's a thing at Stadia, sure. But I mean, I couldn't do anything else at Google. I ain't no programmer. So here we are today. Raccoon Logic just opened up and you guys got to reacquire your IP. I thought thing was going to die in a Google vault. So did I. Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, we have the IP. Who knows what that means? But we have it, which is, you know, a big leap forward than not having it, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be it's gonna be nuts. And at least this time, I get to be more design than QA, at least, which is going to be a big plus. Talk me through that, right? Talk me, you, you get to live kind of the best of both worlds, essentially, right? You get to do the thing you know and love, as well as flex new muscles, yep. learn from pros, and be able to bring your own juice to it, to the project as a designer. What do you enjoy about designing? It's a great question. I just like building stuff that people get to enjoy. And I haven't done much design, like I've said. Like I've done a lot of collectibles and secrets and stuff. And those are super fun because I then go and I jump on Twitch. And weirdly, people still play in that game. Yeah, <laughs> people, like, people like their journey to Savage Planet. And I love watching them interact with my content that I've put in. Yes. Because it's so fun. Like, ooh, do you actually like my quest? Because people at work tell me they do, but is it really good? <laughs> or it's like, ooh, did you did you find that collectible that I'm walking, I'm watching you come up to? Like, do you find it entertaining? You know, I'm I'm sure as I grow and get to do bigger and better things, that's just going to be even more of a fun feeling afterwards. Mm-hmm. But right now, like, it's so enjoyable doing that, and that's really what I want to keep doing. I just like it sucks. Games take so long to make. Yes. But that's all I want to see. I just want to see people interacting with the content I'm building and just, you know, see what happens. I like that, bro. And yeah, for sure, all the streamers out there, we get to get that feedback like right then and there. Oh, yeah. To see the things that we can only see on the dev floor from from our own team, right? And we're all kind of, to be fair, we play it a certain way. So people in the in the wild play it very differently, you know, in a way that you never could have conceived of on your own. Oh, yeah. Well, trust me, I, I know. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. I was interviewed for uh, a speed run thing for IGN. They did a speed run of Journey to Savage Planet. It was like me, Alex, and our community manager, Dennis. Alex Hutchinson yeah. and community manager, <laughs> Dennis. But yeah, it was it was awesome because they were like, oh, does this like hurt you to watch people break your game? Like, no, I find it so fascinating. 
And they're like, well, you're the QA. You don't find that weird. I'm like, no, this is the best part. Like the game's not breaking. They're able to beat it. And they're doing mm-hmm. it in like 12 minutes. It's so cool. Damn. We didn't want to fix it internally. One of the speed runs did get fixed, but it, we didn't try to fix it. It just so happened to be like a, an auto generation of like LODs that broke something. Oh. And then when it got fixed, it sucked that it got fixed, but we weren't trying to fix it. We don't want to take any fun away from the speedrunners because it was so cool to watch. Totally. Like, how cool is it that someone is dedicating so much time to beating your game the fastest, right? Like, that's just cool. It helps the game live on, to be fair, right? There's this whole world of speedrunners trying to min-max and learn how to be pixel perfect at a game. Yeah. So for me, that was just like oh, was super fun to watch, man. And and that's what I want to see more of, like from streamers as I start doing more design. Like I just, I just want to see people engage with it. I don't care how you do it. Like you want to speed run it, have fun. I love it. You want to show me how you can break that thing I spent a year making? Do it. Yeah. Like, it's just going to make me grow as a designer. That's all. Just like QA has so many different branches, so too does design. Is there a particular area of design that intrigues you the most or where do you see yourself like five years from now as a designer where would you like to be that's a good question at the moment i'm just kind of vibing with like a generalist designer i know i know i don't want to be a level designer systems design sounds really fun ai is intriguing a little intense i don't have the the john diaz mindset <sighs> i write a book for you bro thanks i, I read it but yeah it's i don't know where i want to be yet i haven't had enough time to play around with it okay i just know that when i watch people do level design i'm like that is never gonna be me (laughs) it's hey that's a big learning point right know the thing that is not for you that's a huge learning point i love seeing it and i love Mm -hmm. seeing people who can do it well because it's so cool but my brain does not work like that for sure man like a game is only as good as the space you get to kind of create in, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the only thing I'm, I know I'm not going to do. And watch five years, I'm going to be a level designer. would blow my mind. But, I want to be there. You got to let yeah. me know. Yeah, but but no, it's, I don't know. So far, just a generalist, just having fun. Or poking a, a few systems. That's always really fun to do, too. What was it about Raccoon Logic that lured you in? Of the team, 100%. This is mostly the same people you worked with at Typhoon, Yeah. Yeah, I just worked with them so well. They gave so good freedom to what I wanted to do, right? These are the people who let me go from just being the QA lead on their team to wanting me to become a designer on their project, right? Like I remember anytime we go to like a Saint Cassette, it was always like, man, we're so happy you're in school. You're going to make such a good designer. I'm like, God, it's awesome. So it's, it was always that. It's like, these people are just so fun to work with. I can't mm-hmm. wait to work with them again. And that's why I was really sad when Google shut down because they were just so fun to work with. They make really good games. They make fun content, but they're just good people. A group of people that believe in you, that want to see you grow, that are excited to work with you, yeah. they're excited for what you bring to the project. For sure, man, you want to vibe and rock with those people. Yeah. So that was, that was really it. Like, why would I not want to be with that team? Right. I get it. Makes sense to me. All right, James, I'm going to hit you off with the lightning round. You ready? Yeah, go for it. What's the last game you finished? I think it was the new Ratchet and Clank game. Oh, that's a good R- one. Yeah, what is it? Rift in Time or something? Yeah, that, you, you can get a lot Rift, of design Rift lessons. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite studios, period. Insomniac. Insomniac. Mm-hmm. They make such gorgeous games. But I think that was the last one I finished. I've attempted to beat a lot of games, but that one sucked me in over the weekend and I, I couldn't get out. That's why this question is pretty powerful, man. Like with all the options that we have on how to dedicate our time, it's few and far between the game that 
compels you to complete it. Yeah. Dope. What's the last book you read? It was called The Art of Game Design. By Jesse Shell? Yep, that's the one. Oh, yeah, that's a good that's, one. That's a big boy. That's yeah, a that staple. Was, that was the last book. I think every designer told me I just had to read it. Yep, yep, that guy. So, yeah, I think I read it during school. It was great. Anything that still persists in the memory from that book? No. <laughs> <laughs> you apply it day to day. It's just rolled I, over. I think, I think it, it, it did change the way I did design, but how, I could not tell you. How are you liking this whole work from home thing? Honestly, it's not bad. I do miss being in a group of people. I mean, like working as a small studio, it's so much easier to just run over to someone's desk and, and show them something and work with them quick yeah. than having to see if they're online, see if they're not in a meeting already. That's the only part I don't like about the work from home is how hard it can be to actually chat with people. Yep. You got to book it. It's got to be in the calendar. Yeah. Most yeah. of the time. And that sucks because I was so used to just walking over to a desk and talking to someone. So besides that, if that somehow gets fixed, I would love it. But I don't, I don't hate it. I just don't like being able to actually chat with people properly. What's your ideal situation? Is it like a hundred percent in the office, hundred percent at home or some type of hybrid? It's the hybrid. And I believe that's what we're doing at, at Raccoon Logic. I think we're doing a, a three day in office, two day at home. So it, you schedule all the big meetings in the office, uh, you know, do all that over a three day period. And then you have, you know, I think it's, I don't know what days it would be. Let's say it's Monday, Friday at home and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, right? Where's the office? It's on St. Laurent and Rachel. Oh shit. So down right near there. the mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh snap. But yeah, so that, that's my ideal. A few days in the office, a few days at home with okay. the, with the ability to, if the weather is horrible, not come in the office. Yes. Right. In the winter. Uh, yeah. Montreal winters is, is cold. Yeah. But th that's all. And I think that's the, the big thing that work from home did is give us the ability to say, hey, like, it's bad. I can stay home. I can still do my job. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that's my ideal. A few days in the office, but with the ability to, if reasons, I don't have to go in and okay. I can still work. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this, if you weren't making games? Well, as I got my first job in, in the industry, I also was applying to go to school back then at the exact same time. And it just so happened. They both happened at the exact same week. So it was, I got accepted into school, but I also got the job. I took the job. I was going to go into learning to be like um, a systems administrator for PC. Sysadmin, what? Yeah. So what's it, what is that? Is that like standing up racks and managing networks yeah, and stuff like that? That and like also IT, just yeah. those those worlds. I, I'm fascinated with computers, so that's what I yeah, wanted to Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's a cousin of what we do. Yeah, I had had both options and I decided to go with the, the game one because it sounded cooler. Yeah, you, you could probably do that for Google. Shit. Did they give you an opportunity to like transfer to another team? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Okay. They, they were really helpful. But I mean, most teams are program centric. Mm -hmm. There's not really, when you say the word design, it's more about being like a graphic designer. Yeah, product designer. Or like a web designer. Mm -hmm. I'm either of those. Yep. But they were very helpful. Uh, Again, I have no ill will with these people at all. They were great. And they did try to help as much as they could. It's just stuff. And I think even if there was a job, it was, you'd have to move to the States. And I really didn't want to move to the States. Uh, they were getting, damn, they were getting completely out of Montreal. Well, no, but it was, because it, it was more like what job you go for 
dictates where that job is, right? So it's yes. like, hey, let's say let's say I found a job and it was like working for X division. If that division yep. is in California, yeah. I have to go to California. Yep. Because I know they still have stuff in Montreal, but those are very program centric jobs. So anything designy, I think, was more in California or in New York. And uh, yeah, those places sound expensive. Yep. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So that was more the reason for not wanting to do that. But yeah, they tried. They were nice. I uh, so. Closing this episode out, we try to leave it a little better than the way we found it. What words of wisdom would you impart on us as an industry? What could we do better, right? If you had a wish to wave a wand or on a genie or something, what would you change about the industry, if anything? I mean, the only thing, and I, this is again from the QA standpoint, I guess, mm-hmm. is just treat QA like people, man. Give them decent salaries and don't give them like one week contracts where they're constantly on call and fearing for their jobs. Right. Cause like we help your games. Oh yeah. Essential. <laughs> like, that's all there is Essential. to it. Right. So for me that that's it. And I think I watched one year, there was a, a GDC conference from Bioware Montreal mm-hmm. and they had a dev QA conference and they're basically saying, it's like, Hey man, we're your, we're your armor. Like we're the studio's armor and your shield, like use us to your best ability. Cause this is what we're there for. We're there to protect you guys as much as we can. Right. Yeah. And that's all like, just treat us like people. I like that's it. All. I like it. Uh, that's a message that I can easily carry forward and propagate in my little daily activities. Yeah. What do you wish you knew? Or what would you go back in time and tell younger James Kane, maybe like mid nineties, mid nineties, you can work in video games one day. Ah, you didn't know it was even a thing. <laughs> No, man. And it's crazy because I see things on like, I see like YouTube videos of like old Atari QA. And I was like, I never even knew that was a thing. Yeah. I just thought these games got made and came out somehow and like did not think there was a QA point to this. It's funny to me, James, because I grew up in New York and there was very little game dev in New York, right? Everything was happening in West Coast or in Texas or something. Yeah. But Montreal is such a huge dev hub, man. Like, you can't go to a bar and not bump into a game yeah, developer. But, but were they in the 90s, though? Okay, fair. Because now, yeah, every game studio is here in mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form. Like, but Ubisoft's been here. there for, for since the 90s, right? Yeah, but I also thought back then that you had to be like a programmer to be in fair. the industry. An right? artist or a programmer, yeah. Yeah, I, I always thought that was that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I just never thought it was a thing. And I think that's why when my friend brought it up, I was like, man, I can't do that job. But like, okay, maybe I can. Like, who knows? That's why I'm putting the show out there, man. If somehow, some way you don't think that there's a job for you in game development, that's why I'm introducing yeah. everybody, right? And putting them on and sharing this podcast for free and out like, there. If I can tell like, I don't know, early 2000s me when I was in the industry, it would mm-hmm. be more like, don't be afraid to go indie. It's not the end of the world. Like go make your own thing. Either go make your own thing or go work in a smaller company. Like, because those were always scary, man. It was always like, well, I have to stay AAA because of job security. Yes. But indie make pretty cool stuff and you get to juggle more hats than you would at the AAA. Yeah. Like we mentioned earlier, right? You just learn so much more and you make yourself that much more employable. Yep. Mm. So uh, that's more what I would tell myself. It's like indie's not terrifying because. Typhoon was a risk because it was an indie studio and I was going from a job at a AAA that was secure to an indie. But yeah, it shouldn't be that that scary. No regrets, right? Oh, not at all. Hell yeah. Yo, James, man, I love kicking it with you. You're welcome back anytime. As soon as Raccoon City's got some fun things to talk about, I want you to come back. I definitely want to bring Reed on the show. 
definitely mm. want to bring Alex on the show. Where can people go to reach you, connect with you, see what you're working on, anything like this? Connect with me. Just go to LinkedIn. It's the easiest place. It's the easiest place to see what I'm doing and just chat. I feel like LinkedIn's getting so much more popular these days. LinkedIn is the shit, bro. I like yeah. that. It, it, there's very minimum bullshit on there, at least on my feed. It's professional. It's yep. all the things I care and love. And it's all love out there, man. It's love, support, and interesting conversations and ideas. Yeah, yeah. So 100%, just go there, message me if you want to chat. I'm down. LinkedIn is pretty much responsible for almost all the work I've gotten after my first gig. So yeah, no, it's really, it's, it's so much better than people think it is. Oh, so good. Bet I will link your LinkedIn in the show notes for people to click on and connect with you. Dope. We got a ritual on the show. I don't know if you've heard any previous episodes. If you haven't, it's if you had a good time falling out of the play area, kicking it with me. Is it anyone you would nominate to come on the show and fall out behind you? And this is someone that you think could make for a compelling guest, someone that you've looked at as a role model or just someone you think is awesome. I mean, get get JF Champagne on here. Woo! Yeah. Awesome nomination. I'm going to make that, that happen. I'm going to scorpion get that boy hook his on ass. He's, he's such a fun fun guy, too. Like, Oh, he's the man. Get him on. I'm going I'm to try to wrangle him, man. I know he's super busy these days, yeah. but I'm going to try to make him happen. I'm, I'm going to be like, yo, it was not me. James tagged you, bro. Ice yeah, bucket I mean, challenge you, style. You tell him that. I'm down. Bet. Awesome. James, thank you so much, bro. Do you have any closing words for the people out there before we wrap this up? I just love QA, man. That's about it. Like Love QA. Put put the hearts up. Yep. Send them out like that. Send a Slack. If you're hearing this, send a message to your local QA. Tell them how much you appreciate them. Oh, and 100%. No one does that. There you go. You make a difference. Like you do that, you make their, their year. Let's normalize showing love to your QAs. Yeah. All right, James. We out of here. Ciao, Mr. Diaz. One of my favorite things about this show is just hearing the perspective of people who are coming onto the dev floor for the first time. It's just so refreshing hearing the first time perspective, especially as you become a jaded veteran developer. We can forget what it's like that we have pretty special careers and that we should not take them for granted. People would honestly kill to do what we do. And that's what I like capturing and sharing the insides of the industry. It's glamorous, it's tough, it's taxing, but it's so damn worthwhile. As long as you're working with great people who give a shit about the product and the team. I always say, whatever you're doing, learn the engine or the editor, take initiative to learn the tools and use them in whatever way you can to help the team. The majority of the time, if you're learning and moving the needle, getting changes reviewed and approved and committed, that's going to reflect positively on you. And those are skills that you get to develop on the job. There's very few things better than leveling up while getting paid at the same time. I've worked at places that seriously slapped my hand from touching systems that I didn't author or write. Even though it was a small enhancement that was buddied, approved, tested, and verified, dude came over with some God complex, was like, yo, don't touch that. No reason, no explanation, no discussion. Rest assured, I never did, and I got the fuck up out of there, because that's not the type of leadership that I want any part with. Man, you know, reminiscing about WGB Games Montreal, we had such an amazing pool of talent, such awesome people, super passionate, super creative. I'm rooting for the people who stayed behind to pump out Gotham Knights. But for the rest of us that made the tough decision to leave and jump ship and go on to push out other games, 
I love connecting with them. If there's one guarantee in this wild industry is that it's very likely that we may very well end up working together again someday. Lastly, be nice. Remember James Kane's words, be nice to your devs, be nice to your QA. Let your fellow teammates and QA know today how much you appreciate them. And if there's any way that you can help make their life easier or even take an interest in how they want to grow and help foster that. Better teammates make for a better development cycle. On episode 28, debuting the week of GDC 2022, I'll sit down with the speaker behind 1,000 Hours of Difficulty, How Destiny Builds Systemic Challenge, and a dear old friend and mentor in this tech design space, a fellow outlaw to the end, Alan Blaine, a principal technical designer at Bungie working on all things Destiny. We go through his vast journey coming up from Pasadena, working on Thrasher Skate, his time as an electronic artist at Westwood in Las Vegas, working on Warriors for Rockstar Toronto, and then making the jump over to Rockstar San Diego, where he was a huge part in building out that design team for that Game of the Year award-winning Red Dead Redemption 1, as well as helping us get our footing on GTA 5 and more. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the game developers podcast releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, bring them home. By the tenants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibes. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. We out of play. It's just a little something for the game devs. Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous. Had to switch the styles for a challenge. Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales. A new podcast comes to provide the balance. With game dev veterans and rising talents. Out of play. Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast. A show by game devs.